Yeah, I mean, the irony of it is we, we achieve the most and we improve the most and we win the most on the backs of failure and losses. Uh, my most groundbreaking moments in my career have been losing a world championship, losing a national championship, breaking my foot, all things that essentially sideline me mentally and physically. Um, and, and that's when you take the most inventory. Welcome to Playing Business. I'm Deshaun Kaiser. And I'm Dan Gardner. During season one of Playing Business, we sat down with professional athletes, sports commentators, league owners, and one of the world's most prolific climbers to ask the question, can success in sport translate to success in business? Paul is known as the Michael Jordan of professional lacrosse. Since his playing days, he took on big projects like launching his own lacrosse league. He's a pioneer when it comes to the athletes leveraging their personal brands and have built the playbook for many others who wish to do the same. We'll unravel the layers of his career, dig into some strategies that drove his entrepreneurial ventures, and gain insights into the mindset that has propelled him to become a true game changer in every sense of the word. Let's get into it. Let's just dive right in. Maybe the, the backstory of how you got into lacrosse, right? I think there's a, a story about a neighbor who loaned some equipment to get you yeah. into the sport. Yeah, I grew up playing rec sports. I basketball, soccer, swam, track and field. Um, and then lacrosse came to me relatively late, even though I'm from Maryland. Uh, when people hear Maryland or New York, they think lacrosse, but it's really Baltimore and Long Island. So the area I grew up in is called Montgomery Village. Wasn't much lacrosse at all. My neighbor was playing on a rec team and he gave me his backup equipment. Uh, and I just wanted to hang out with my friends more, <clears throat> which I think if you look at probably why kids play, it's to have fun, um, it's to compete, and uh, in a lot of cases it's to, uh, you know, because their parents asked them to or signed them up. And so I wanted the, f the first part, really, to spend more time with my friends. I was getting a lot of value out of basketball and soccer competitively, and I'd been playing for, you know, call it five, six, seven years. And uh, it was very much of a sport family. My dad loved them. And, I was attracted to them organically. Um, and I wasn't any good at lacrosse when I started because it's, it's actually a really technical sport, much like golf or hockey. Uh, baseball, if you're trying to hit a pitch for the first time. And, um, and so that was difficult. Uh, my parents kept me in it because I wasn't used to struggling in sports. I tended to be the better player on the team. So it took me about 18 months. And then right on that 18 month turn, like it, it clicked and I became really obsessed with the game. Awesome. And then you become a star in high school, end up at John Hopkins. Did it click that you wanted to go do this, you know, for a career? Or was, you know, at the time, there wasn't as much path that you seemed to have paved a way for? Like, yeah. did, did you have that dream? Yeah, it's a unique one, right? I, I think that for college athletes, mostly, you, you sign up and you're so focused on winning a championship. And you have an idea, your peripheral vision, especially if you're a hooper or you're playing football, that there is an afterlife in the NBA and the NFL. Um, but in lacrosse, I knew there wasn't an afterlife. And as I was fortunate to win championships, college, it was right at the advent of social media, I realized there was something there. But again, my, my focus was just on winning. And when I graduated, that's when I actually took a job in real estate. Oh, wow. I was drafted number one overall. But the league was you know, paying me $6,500. And, yeah, and so I needed income. Yeah. Um, but it was at that time where I was also understanding social and its relevance, largely because lacrosse wasn't on TV, 
but when Facebook launched fan pages, sort of overnight I had 50,000 fans. Wow, yeah. So it's when they first invited you to follow people that weren't you know, friends of friends. And so that demonstrated to me that there was an audience that, that liked lacrosse, that wanted pro lacrosse. So I just started engaging with them and along came an Under Armour sponsorship, then a Red Bull sponsorship, because everyone at the time was trying to figure out social. What is yeah. this fad, yeah. right, or phase? And, um, and that supplemental income allowed me to leave my job in real estate and try professional lacrosse full time. Let's, let's go back to the real estate thing, because I think that that kind of uncovers a bit of a trend in some of the emerging sports right now. And that's this concept of sports as a career yeah. versus sports as a side hustle or yeah. kind of vice versa where you still have sports as a career but you need this side hustle to kind of maintain. I know being at Notre Dame there's quite a few of those lacrosse guys who all ended up on Wall Street. So like this concept of like wearing a suit during the week but then hopping on a plane to go play games. Talk a little bit about that kind of work culture of a lot of these guys who are truly yeah. corporate soldiers by day and, and lacrosse guys by night. Well professional sports for athletes is ageist. The only other industry that I can think of that is the same is modeling where you know you have, by average, a two and a half to three year career. If you're one of the best and potentially the best ever, you can play for 10 to 14 years. There's a cap, but it's different than our parents or other people that can do 20, 30, 40 year careers in business. And so traditionally athletes and agents would say, make as much money as you can in those 14 years. It shifted to make as much money as you can and or let's position you for the future. And the and or is sometimes it can work perfectly like Steph Curry in Golden State, where he's got one of the most uh, intellectually startup venture driven ownership groups that help him and have helped him over time build his off the court career while also capturing max value on, on court. Um, so that's sort of the dream. Um, for me, I didn't get to sort of make that decision. It was sort of create, 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 create. Is this something that, that is worth pursuing? Um, can it become real? If real, to what extent? And then the snowball started rolling and building and building. And that was sort of what led me in a very short way here. So you did it in some way kind of out of necessity because it didn't have the Golden State. Yeah. And you talked about social media, but did you know that sort of this idea of like athlete as brand, as business, like were you seeing that at that point or were you just like, oh wow, there's a following, which means I have some distribution. Yeah. But was it, did you have that sort of future vision at that yeah. moment? Well, well, this was 2008, 2009. And I remember right in that period, call it 08 to 10, was the word brand yeah. actually being inserted in the public lexicon. People knew what brands were, but they, but at the time they called what we call brands companies yep. and what we call athletes or uh, entertainers celebrities. Yep. It, uh, it, and then so brand became, started to become ubiquitous and it was really wrapped around the idea that athletes, entertainers, artists could tell their own story and not be dependent on an editorial or a network to do so. Um, and it's created a much bigger, more profitable enterprise for all involved. Um, because we just live, when I've always lived in an attention economy. Right? And attention is how you generate revenue at like the highest level. And traditionally in business, call it like post-war industrial revolution era, was build a product, find what's called product market fit, and then try to capture an audience. 
Now, and this isn't good in all cases, it's build an audience, create a product for that audience. Yeah, distribution first and then work yeah. backwards, yeah. 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 So anyway, it's, uh, it's, there's some, I mentioned there's like uh, pros and cons to it, right? You have athletes in a lot of cases that aren't even playing that have bigger brands and followings than the athletes who are the best in the world because they've been able to figure out how to create you know, a, a, a really strong fan group and audience. And you know, I remember I used to listen to Howard Stern quite a bit because he's regarded as one of the best interviewers in the world and his career's evolved. But during the time of uh, podcast growth in the last 10 years, he, was, uh, he had so much, so much animosity because what Howard, if you know is that Howard is a proper DJ and on his podcast, he controls everything. He controls the soundboard, mm. cues music, cues his guests, uh, goes to break, turns on ads. Fantastic. Like, that's how he learned business. And then, to no fault of any podcaster, we're all podcasters. The technology evolved. The equipment got more affordable. And we're able to essentially access the same amount of people that Howard and others can. So there's a sense of uh, change there and, and understanding everyone's point of view. But, uh, yeah, you have some... Some people out there who are bigger media personalities than those who have trained their entire life and have been on the biggest networks in the world. And so we always we have to kind of look at everything and, and make our own decision, yep. perhaps. When did you start thinking this way? Like, like <laughs> The whole point of this podcast is that there are a handful of guys that are like us, but let's call it what it is. That's, that's, not, you know, that's a very small percentage in the locker room. Locker room talk doesn't necessarily go here. We take it here because of, of who we are with the business and, and kind of deep thought. And just meeting you 20 minutes ago, yeah. we're talking mindfulness and spirituality and deep thinking. Kind of been you, or was there a time where it's like, now I, I need to take control, and naturally you got yeah. into kind of bigger thinking? It hasn't always been me. Um, I think that, I've, I've thought about this, so I think that the skills that I harnessed as an athlete that was so focused on, like I said, winning that championship and being the best player in the world, I was tapping into the same sort of characteristics and skills that I use now just differently. So what I would tap into the creativity or critical thinking or deep thinking was how I approach practice. And so a lot of the greatest athletes in the world are ultra creative and they're just using their creativity differently. Um, the, creative, the creative act written um, by Rick Rubin is he's a fantastic uh, producer and, and musician. Uh, it, it just talks about how essentially like the world wants to define who creatives are, who the artists are, based on sets of principles and, and accolades and what they do. But we're all creative in our own ways. It just depends on uh, how we're utilizing that creativity at that time. And at one point for me, athletically, it was just against the wall. It was just shooting. It was changing the drills that I was learning in practice to try to acquire a skill quicker than perhaps what I was gaining. And now I just use my my mind intellectually to do the same thing, just covering different topics that I think are relevant to me, things that are interesting. You know, I've, I always think, you know, when someone's seven, hypothetically, you're good at painting or maybe, you know, musician or, yeah, yeah. you know, you're a good writer or you're a good athlete or you're good at math and everybody gets put in these buckets. Yeah. So, you, you know, you, you think about creativity a lot. Was that early on that you thought of yourself as a creative? When you, uh, my when mom you were, was an art teacher. Okay, she my mom was. was an okay, art yeah. Um, I uh, I love the arts, but I would say the the people that you're describing, there are very few of them. Those yeah. are sort of savants. That Tiger Woods had a 
golf club, and even though his dad Earl gave it to him, he could hit it down the fairway at three years old. Yeah. Like Lindsey Vaughn, you know, hooked up her skis and was down a, up a ski lift and down a hill when she was two or three. Uh, those are those are their own kind, their own block of species. I would yeah. say, like, I, sport. I, I would consider myself uh, an overachiever, and and I look at that as my 13-year-old self as uh, not good enough. So I'm going to have to outwork. As my 37-year-old self, I'm like, I, I really appreciate being an overachiever. It just means you work really hard, you're yeah. thoughtful, and uh, you're going above and beyond your potential. Some people in the world have just unimaginable potential. When you were 13, were you thinking beyond? Forget about the potential part, no. but were you thinking beyond? When I was 13, I just wanted to kiss a girl, be liked by my friends. And play sports. And play sports. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that was sort of that. You know, and, and, and what age did you realize? Okay, besides, well, I yeah. also so I also grew up in uh, you know just called like middle America, lower middle income family. Uh, my dad sold paper. My mom was an art teacher, elementary school, uh, and we just played rec sports. It was me and my brother fighting for the potential second serving at the dinner table, and uh, and then we grew up Catholic, uh, very um, just just you know very very just focused on family and and. Um, and I would say the goals for high achievement were never laid out in front of me. And some people may say like, oh, you know, I wanna give my kids everything and give them the ability to believe they can do everything. And I, I, I believe firmly that all parents are just doing their best and all people are just doing their best. I'm grateful that everything and colleagues that I'm up against have seen that have maybe had that pressure or had that palate to jump in to do anything they like. It, it short-circuited along the way, and not having those high expectations allowed me to explore them on my own, which is really valuable. That is very, very, very interesting. I've never thought of it from that angle, because we relate more than you'd ever imagine. You, know, you grew up in middle America, Ohio, both middle, lower middle class, dad's a cop, mom works at the, the uh, local family courts in, in our county. and. I agree. I too didn't have big vision. I tell people all the time, I didn't grow up trying to be a professional NFL player or an NBA player. That wasn't my dream. There's a lot of people who dream that and they, and they yeah. see that vision and they go get it. For me, I kind of fell into it because I was naturally taught to lead and, and to, to um, kind of separate myself from the pack when it came to sports. So I, it's, it's clear as day in our conversation that you're special, you're different. You go and you, you play at this high level in college, you get drafted number one, you're doing real estate, you start to, to, to build this following, you mentioned social media as, as kind of a, a good way to find your distribution and, and kind of find your brand. But then you also take it upon yourself to, to create a new standard within your sport, to really start to lead your sport. Obviously you're, you're the best on the field, but you clearly took this same exceptionality on the field and, and apply that to something off the field. So that leadership, I think, is, there's not a lot of people who go and act on it. They might be able to think it, they might be able to talk it, but at the end of the day, they play ball. And I think there's a lot of guys that, that we've been around like that. You've decided to now go really disrupt your entire sport. So I'm just curious, maybe in that context, when did that thought come about? Obviously you had social media, yeah. but now you decide, hey, I'm gonna go do more than just me on a fan page, but rather take my, my brothers who are next to me and, and give us all kind of a new path. Yeah, well, I'd have to first say that my dad has a level of altruism that's amazing. Like I, my brother and I both aspire to be as community-driven and uh, as giving as my dad is. Um, 
so I think that's a part of our, our DNA. Yeah. Um, but I would say, much like we were before we were starting to talking about relationships and working on self and maybe even zooming out further, the act of or the perception of selfishness is considered negative in the world, but we need to and are constantly practicing through different acts of our lives uh, in the realm of selfishness. You meaning you have to take care of yourself, you have to explore yourself, you have to understand yourself, you have to protect yourself, and you have to do what you want to do, uh, what's best for you. And that's the only way to be able to create a battery level that you can potentially help others charge. And so for me, you know, I was playing professional lacrosse to create a career for myself, a living for myself that I could uh, do exclusively and test boundaries around what it meant to be a professional lacrosse player. Hadn't been done. And so I was accessing social media, a lot of self-talk on that platform, and that's what that is, self-promotion, et cetera. Um, I had sponsorships and a lion's share of sponsorships compared to other athletes. Um, and I was scoring more goals and more assists than everyone else, and I was uh, relishing in that. And I grew up um, idolizing and watching Michael Jordan. I wanted to be Michael Jordan, and I knew all of the good and some of the bad that came with that. And he talks about it in his documentary. And it's, it's basically like, you know, these are my expectations, these are my goals, and if I have to get in your ass as a teammate, to meet me there, then I'm gonna get in your ass. And he, uh, and, and he had this, this way about him that was hard for a lot of people. And that level of competitiveness I admired. That got me to a place when I was 28, 29, where I had multiple MVPs and championships and uh, took a lot of names along the way, but was unhappy with, with where I was at personally. Because you sacrifice a lot to try to accomplish being the best or the greatest at what you do. And so I spent a lot of time then, and there was some other stuff that happened, I spent a lot of time then going into therapy. It started with sports psychology, because I didn't want to get a therapist. Um, that then opened up the opportunity to work in therapy, uh, personally, interpersonally, and I committed to that, like practice on the field. I was doing it twice a week for probably my first three years, and do it once a week for eight years now. And so, uh, that allowed me to continue to what I'm doing now, which is explore the possibility of actually both. I'm not certain, and I've debated who many in sports would consider the greatest sports psychologists around being able to turn it on and turn it off. I'm not sure it's possible. If you want to be Michael Jordan, like there, you just have to sow that. And what that means is you're going to not only kick everyone's ass along the way, but you're going to step on them on your way out. And that's, uh, you have to be prepared for that. And all the flack that comes with that. And, uh, you know, everyone can want to be LeBron James or Cristiano Ronaldo, but the amount of criticism they get on a daily basis is really challenging. So being able to learn how to navigate that. So anyway, long way saying, so I, I was going through all of that. I felt like I had reached a point in my career where I was starting to hit a ceiling with myself. And then I was looking around and going, well, there's no sport that has been successful with one person. Even boxing is always a, a, a bout of two people. And so I'm still, I'm still selfish at that time. And I'm going, all right, I need to bring other people along. 
So I started figuring out how to um, work with some teammates and therapy had helped and started actually building really meaningful relationships in my life. And then that led to then questioning sort of the establishment. Could we do this in the existing league, Major League Lacrosse? Um, worked with my brother, who's my co-founder on the PLL and our CEO, and tried to buy the MLL, couldn't. But it led to the place where, okay, my next phase in life is going to be all about sharing and creating for the people who love this game. And the challenge there is going to be sort of unlocking my attachment to self and knowing that there's going to be um, a version of that that needs to evolve, but I want to now in this part of my life um, build with others. And uh, that was sort of the shift and perhaps the intellectual shift that you referenced. Even though you're building with others, to be successful in business, you still have to be relentless. So how were you able to balance the, I'm gonna be successful, so basically, you're my teammates even together. Yeah. So how did that, is it, was it the same mentality, even though if it, it was a little more selfless instead of selfish, was the mentality still there yeah, in business? Yeah, well, I would say my brother takes on probably more of my on-field mentality that I had. I have, I have a much better relationship with that mindset and those transferable emotions to other people mm-hmm. that are around me. So I've, I wouldn't say like I've cured it because our our life's journey is always about that, you know. And my goal of giving you that long way answer is just being honest, right? Yeah. Like I I wasn't proud of I look back now at who I am and wasn't proud of the player that I was, but I also am appreciative and understanding of to where I am now. I had to do that, mm-hmm. um, and so business different than sport is that to be successful in business, you need to have that that fight and the resilience and the grit. But successful business people are, are really good at understanding compromise. Yeah. And that's a huge difference because in sports, it's just about taking you out. And the strong survive, the fastest win, um, those that have the better game plan, those that execute, those who iterate. But ultimately, I have to defeat you. And in business, if you take on that mindset, you'll lose. All right? And, and I think a lot of people even get a deal wrong if I go at a micro level as they try to win a deal. Mm. Where if you approach a deal and say, how can I help you? And then this is what I need. This Because everyone wants to help each other. And then understanding that we're both going to lose something in that deal to be better and being honest about that is, as I've found, we're the most successes. So we're both going to lose a little bit. And hopefully what we decide we're going to win outweighs that in a surplus. And you don't think that's similar? I mean, I hear how it's different, but do you not think there are some similarities that you don't win every point to win the championship? You don't win every game. You know, you're, sometimes you have to conserve en- energy on the field. Like, there are compromises in moments, even though, because in business, it's still competitive. You, you were starting a league, and you were trying to maybe take out the other league that you were trying to take against. So there was that competitiveness. There may be deals that you're not winning every yeah. deal on or every deal point. Yeah. But long term, well, yeah, you're well, winning. I would, say, I would say it's fair to say there's always exceptions, right? Yeah. So when we were competing with MLL, yeah. we needed to beat them. Yeah. So what I was sort of referencing is like, if I'm cutting a deal with Stagwell, yeah, one of not. their accounts, right? I'm trying to build a win-win. Yeah. Um, related to on the field, it's a good point because it's 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 tricky. And here's what I'll say: I've thought about this quite a bit. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but uh, you have to 
in practice throughout the week and even after the game when you do, do, do a post-mortem is look at this, the average statistics on hand and say, all right, and for us, it was score 12 goals, give up seven. And yep. If we hit those markers, we felt really good. Um, so, but then you have to compartmentalize that. And in a game, the best athletes, they want to win every fucking point, no matter what. And if you allow yourself to fall back during a game, which I did at times, it would be like, okay, you know, didn't have a great first quarter, I'm gonna have a good second quarter. Like that, that's when you start overthinking, you're taking yourself out of the present moment. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a turn on and turn off, and then turn on here when you had to hop, hop onto the field. And I think, um, you know, Michael Jordan would have loved to have won every game 100 to nothing. <laughs> that was his mindset. Uh, and then, yeah, probably in post, he'd sit back and go, all right, we won 120 to 80, kick their ass. But he, he would take back every point that he was on the court. Some of the opposing team scored, Zach, so could have stopped them here. Right. Or we could have stopped them there, I think. Yeah, but then it requires, like, perspective of yeah. kind of what you're yeah. mentioning to allow yeah. some of those losses to still motivate you and still turn into wins later down yeah. the road. I think that some people get so caught up, as you mentioned, on the winning that as soon as they lose and as soon as they have that bad quarter, that's what kind of ruins their game and maybe ruins a, a week or you know a season because you're so focused in on some compounding L's where I think that Kobe uh, has, has opened up a lot about kind of how he goes about failure and how that really motivates him to continue to be greater on the, on the next play. I think that that really is a, is, a, is a determining factor of greatness. Yeah, I mean, the irony of it is we, we achieve the most and we improve the most and we win the most on the backs of failure and losses. Uh, my most groundbreaking moments in my career have been losing a world championship, losing a national championship, breaking my foot, all things that essentially sideline me mentally and physically. Um, and, and that's when you take the most inventory. And some coaches will say like, hey, there's, there's actually nothing better than playing really poorly and winning the game. <laughs> And, and I said, oh, yeah, that guy, there's a perfect scenario, but still you won, you know? As an athlete, when you put everything, mind and body, physiologically into something and you lose, and then the nature of relationship to fans, right? It's the only time where I would say, okay, an anxious, an anxious avoidant, attached relationship style is fantastic in sports <laughs> when you have that with your fans because they're fucking all over you to win and then they hate you when you lose and you all want to just be together in the end. That's, the, uh, ironically, the, the most helpful thing that any athlete can go through is loss. I just had a conversation with uh, Dan, CEO of Code and Theory, uh, Treff, about change and when to implement change. And I kind of want to, I was thinking about this from the business side, I think it makes a lot of sense, but I wonder if, if you agree on the sports side. And that he says that change is best when you're winning, not when you're losing. And I think that a lot of people lose they try to take that inventory, and now they want to make these aggressive, you know, changes to their lifestyle, changes to their yeah. training to try to come up and uh, win that next season. But during that time in business, you have the least amount of money, you have the the lowest runway when it comes to thoughts and resources as you go to make those big changes when you're when you're losing. But when you're winning, now you have a surplus. You have you have that mental openness to be able to go out and make some adjustments while you're on top. Would you agree with that in sports? That is it your time to make a big change when, you know, you're, you're down bad and you have, you know, that loss in the world championship? Well, it's complex. So I, I would say that um, I don't think one change is necessarily better or, or worse than the next. I think 
changing when you're winning is, can be really good if it's effective, and changing when you lose is also really good if it's effective. Um, I think in, in business, it's less definable as sport. When you lose, it's, it's binary. Right? It's definitively you lost the game. In business, you, you lose a sale, you didn't win the RFP, and like the, the business is still going, it didn't fail. And so you're making iterations. I think related to the locker room and sport in game, because games are so fluid, the best coaches in the world have multiple game plans and know how to communicatively uh, describe those game plans to their players without feeling like any type of breaking of superstition or, you know, I'll give you an example. If, uh, if a team is down in hoops 10-0 or we're out of the gates and down 4 nothing, no one wants to say that or suggest that before the game because it's going to happen. God forbid, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so what happens is when it does, you're not prepared because you didn't discuss it. And so you always want to set in sports, what I think about people do is set goals for when things are going well. And that's when you don't need those goals set because that's when you're in a flow state. When you're up three or four, nothing, things are just fucking working. Just keep it going type of thing. Hear coach say at halftime, just got to keep this thing going. Right? Um, and so the best goals in sports are called rebound goals. And you hear them in golf primarily. Michael Phelps was known for it, where he would train in the water uh, where his coaches were in opposing lanes and fucking with his waves. So he'd push the water in different ways. So he'd have to like adjust to the unpredictable. And in golf, the most celebrated shot, one of the most celebrated shots is the up and down. What gives you an up and down shot? Hitting a shitty fairway. Right, they're seeing a shitty drive that's off the fairway. And so they have celebrated Phil Mickelson, who's made you know tens of hundreds of millions of dollars for hitting these amazing flop shots from the pine. You know, and they don't talk about how he got in the pine. And so uh, that's a mindset in golf. And, and so in sport, I believe if, if you have great coaches that can, uh, again, communicate the possibilities and have game plans to react, you're going to win more often. And is that change or is that uh, space for change? Maybe both. Um, but I think that uh, sport and, and the best teams have that. I mean, Steve Kerr is prime example. Unbelievable coach that learned under Greg Popovich that was also sort of of same mentality. In business, do you think, do you plan for the not success? Yeah, have to. Yeah. I was emailing with one of my direct reports today around uh, one of our hires that's going into a producer editor, and if it doesn't work out because this is going to be a first-time manager, he was like, "I'll figure it out." And I was like, "Well, what's our what is figure it out? Let's talk about that. Just just know." Yeah. And so I think managers are just like coaches. Yeah. Their job is to bring on the absolute best players to their team. Um, and retain those players and give them the resources that they can do to perform because it's the manager who's going to reap the rewards or deal with the issues. And much like a coach on a team, and to your question, building multiple scenarios around things that could happen. Um, we're in the business of sports, so it's much easier for me to talk to my team uh, you know, metaphorically around our game weekends. And, yeah. I call our company the ninth team in the league and 
things like that. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the league. Yeah, I think there's so much more to unpack. Tell us a little bit about the start of POL. You know, what were you guys looking to do different? Yeah. You mentioned trying to acquire the MLL was one of the original goals. Yeah. You obviously take a position to compete. Let's talk a little bit about that competition. Well, setting the stage, I would say uh, pro lacrosse wasn't performing. And what led to the question of why not was the emergence of MLS and UFC domestically, where prior to modern day media and internet, there was a huge moat around the big four, basketball, soccer, football, hockey in America, um, and, and, and baseball as well. And so what, what, what we saw was possibility because of the aforementioned and why wasn't the league leaning into that at the time, you had ownership groups that essentially were treating lacrosse at the professional level as if it was beachfront water property. And as the sport continued to grow, so would the pro game. If you look at the history of pro sports in America, it's never been the case. College mostly was king. And then at a pro level, when the game would start there, you'd have to have owners and operators invest in innovation, into players, into distribution, into marketing even the NFL. They struggled like hell in the early 1900s. And then it took them 60 years and leveraging the new medium of television to really figure it out. And a PR marketing guy from the LA Rams who they dubbed the commissioner at 33 and Pete Rozelle. And so understanding media marketing, believing in growth, believing in possibility and investing was not what pro lacrosse was doing. And I was pretty fed up by it. And this was the part where I was turning from selfishness to external growth. And uh, teamed with my brother, we tried to buy MLL, we couldn't, so we were like, fuck it, let's start our own league. And we were gonna do it in stealth, so we raised a bunch of capital quietly, talked to a lot of the players who I'd built relationships with, um, launched the PLL, competed with MLL for the first two seasons. The pandemic came around, we ended up buying them. Um, and what we did differently, uh, we quadruple player wages, our players have equity in the league, and they have access to healthcare. So we knew that, okay, our players aren't making a million bucks, but they're gonna have equity when the NFL players weren't making a million bucks in the 60s and didn't have equity. Mm -hmm. And so we're thinking about ways to uh, sort of balance their economic outlook in creative ways that startups do. Um, we needed a distribution deal, so we cut a deal with NBC. We needed great partners. We found a, a deal with Adidas and Gatorade. And, and things that I remember the former commissioner at the time would tell me like, no one wants to invest in lacrosse. Th that wasn't untrue, but you have to figure it out. You, you have don't to want give to them invest if you didn't get a product that they would want to invest in, basically. Yeah, yeah. and if they didn't know yeah. what the product yeah. was right. either, right? right? And I think lacrosse has had a lot of brand damage over the last 30 years and things that we still work on now. But the, the beautiful thing is we're not building or, you know, we're not building slam ball or, or you know, redubbing um, CrossFit from circuit training. like. We, we, are, we are trying to build a sport that's the first in North America. It's an indigenous game. It was created by the Haudenosaunee people. It was the first team sport played at the college level in 1877 by Manhattan versus NYU. It was an Olympic sport in 1904 and 1908. And, and what we come to find out is the game sort of lost leadership, um, didn't have sort of a level of effort and investment and innovation at the college or professional level, and it sort of died off. And, we're essentially trying to revive it and and really focused and passionate about it. And we've been able to do so, you know, hence year five now, having a major media rights deal with ESPN, having over two and a half dozen partners, um, 
ticket sales, viewership, streaming numbers are up, and we're building a real business and, and a real career opportunity for college lacrosse players to not take a job in real estate like I did. Do you feel like you're competing against the big leagues now or the emerging leagues like pickleball and MLS? I think and everyone's in competition. It's just now. Thing. That's yeah. what Roger Goodell would say. Yeah. I mean, look, it's just share of wallet, right? Yeah. So one dollar with you is one dollar less with me. Mm. And I think that there are, I mean, that may sound like a little crass, but I think uh, at a high level, you know, you could say that sports is competing in the advertising space mm. for. Or brands, and then if you get a, at a micro level, it's 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 really strategic. So, what brands speak to our audience? How can they resonate at what time of year mm -hmm. and through what avenues? And so, at a again at a micro level, we're in the summer. So, I would say the big sports that are off in the summer is us, Major League Baseball, MLS, NWSL, yep. um, and so LPGA. So, we're all sort of playing in the same time zone. But we all have like slightly different audiences, and there's a lot of brands and really, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars that go out every year in advertising. Um, so you have to be creative and a critical thinker. And then, frankly, like I think a lot of leagues get along. You know, I spent a lot of time with other commissioners and and figuring out ways that we could work together, collaborate, and share best practices, things of that nature. Yeah. What are you guys doing different? It's 2025. You become the next commissioner of the NFL. I'm only saying NFL because obviously that's where I come from. What do you bring into the NFL that you may have learned or have done in, in, in lacrosse that you think that we're missing right now? Ooh, that's a tough question because it's hard to bring something in the NFL. They are a beast. Right. I mean, they're a juggernaut. I would say that I would take a... I've spent a lot of time with their new executive director. So D. Smith is formerly executive director of the NFLPA, Players Inc. I think he's I think he's actually got seven more days left on the job. He's a friend of mine. And so when we launched the PLL, not only did I have my experience as a player that was potentially and did play in in the league that I was building. So that sort of navigating that conflict, but also more importantly seeing the side of a player versus ownership. And then D was on the ground sort of helping us learn more about the division between players and teams, players and owners at the NFL. So I, I think that, you know, in the end, sports are enterprise businesses because they harness live intellectual property. Um, that is the last standing firewall of network television or advertising organic placement. And the reason is, is we can pay a tax in the form of a subscription for our news and our entertainment on a streaming service to not consume ads. You will never do that in sport because we have quarters, we have timeouts, we have TV breaks, we have coaches challenges, we have on-field logo placement opportunities, you have uh, what we call integrated ad placements where power play is sponsored by X. And, uh, and, that, is, and that is unique to sports. So that's really valuable. So it's live IP, and you have real estate. And real estate, I think, is in person and digital. So owned and operated apps and things like that. But real estate, you're seeing a lot of the biggest NFL owners creating multi-use properties. So you have hotels, casinos, restaurants, nightclubs, all that stuff is in and around Cowboy Stadium. Um, and so that, that's the value proposition. And how do you get there is, is really through being fan-obsessed and player-obsessed. So I think if there's something that I could bring to the NFL, it would be continued to to focus on the players. Yep. I think they have fans right, they have real estate right, they have live IP right, great partners. 
Um, but maybe I'll spend some more time thinking about it because that's, yeah. that's a good question I've never been asked. Yeah, I like that you said the players because there's this uh, understanding across professional athletes that the NFL is probably the least player-friendly league that's out there. You hear about yeah. the support that the NBA gives the players. You know, you have a league that you created in which players even got equity. There's a lot of concepts that are being tested right from media. When you have the Netflix docs, where now you're really getting a personal relationship with some of these characters, some of these equity conversations. I'm just curious if, if there's any specific uh, strategies that are out there that becomes a little more player-centric. Because I think if you go ask any NFL exec, they would start telling you the millions and millions of dollars that they put into programs that support their players, yet there's still kind of this theme of you're not a, a player-led league. So what do we need to see think, to yeah, become more of a player-led league? It's tricky. It's tricky. I think it's as much brand and reputation, which takes decades to turn, as it is the fabric of society. I mean, the longest, one of the longest-standing, most successful programs in television history is The Office, which at its core brings to light the love-hate of workforce and boss. It's human. It's human. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, Mike and I talk about how our players are always asking us for better accommodations, and we've quadrupled the accommodations for our players. Um, and, and we have to figure out when, when that is discernible and actual action for us to, depo to deploy versus just life. And I, I reminded Mike, because when we were flying, our, our connection was delayed, and it's easy to be like, you know, which, which then leads to the driver not being available. And, and it's like the, the person who set it up's fault. It's not. It's just life. And, and as humans, to your point, we're always looking to kind of point the finger. Yeah. And so I think that what's needed is over-communication. We talked about how an athlete's lifespan is really short. What we haven't talked about is the extended payroll of team sports versus individual sports. Right, so individual sport, take F1, the Lewis Hamilton can be featured and celebrated and promoted. And I don't know him personally nor his relationship with the F1, uh, but it could be great. Right? And it's, it's a bit easier to do that in an individual sport. Uh, in a team sport, your payroll is massive. You're paying for guys who don't step on the field. You're paying for guys who don't suit up. Yep. And so that's, uh, that's part of like the ownership responsibility. There are things that I understand when NFL executives or ownership groups feel agitated and understand. It's, it's actually a bit like politics in this country where uh, we should be better, and I don't think our public officials are great at bifurcating the 1% versus the rest of America. And we're always fucking talking about the 1%. And, and taxes being increased on what, it's like very few people on the 1%. And I think when, when we think about sports, there's the 1%. They get max pay, they get taken care of, and then there's everyone else. And so we have to have a conversation, which one are we gonna talk about now? Because we, we need to improve, we always need to improve everywhere. But I think what uh, is real about over-communication and objective is having hard conversations with, depending on the athlete and where they fall. Right? It might be a guy who, who never plays. It might be a guy who uh, is trying to make the team. It might be a guy who went through that and then became a star like Julian Edelman is here. Um, and so understanding the possibilities with, with the reality and being super direct I think is really important. And the last thing I'll say is that why it's hard 
is that every athlete is there because they have this irrational belief, which is the amazing thing I do, that you're going to be there. You're going to be the best. So you have to deploy these really um, sophisticated communicative skills to show them empathy and belief while also saying, here's where we are now. I'm just curious, like, I mean, way back, like we talked about, you realized social media was a way to do that when you had an ownership that didn't support you. Yeah. The reality is the structure and system exists, and yeah, it'll change, it could, hopefully could change for the better, but there, are you, do you see emerging tech out there, like a future tech, maybe it's AI, maybe it's something else, that empowers athletes, whether you're on the field, and listen to the non-1% athletes we're talking about, to just take control and create that equity for themselves or opportunities that extend beyond the field? Because back in the day, you saw it with social media. What are you seeing now that could do that? Well, I think leagues, and, and us included, have externship programs and uh, divisions within our business that can support player ambitions. Um, I, I'm not sure, uh, from a tech standpoint, there's anything out there. But what I will say is we build player portals so our players have access to uh, not only our cap table of sophisticated investors or all different industries, yeah. but they have access to Mike and myself and our player relations team and access to their travel coordinators and things to just make their life easier. Um, but even outside, like, the league facilitation, just an individual technology that allows them to extend sort of their reach or distribution or following or I business. Think it depends, and, yeah, I think it depends on, um, on what they want, yeah. right? If they want to learn a lot, of bunch, a lot of different skills during their free time, I would say Masterclass is really good. Yeah. Uh, we, we've signed up some of our people in different businesses, those that don't even sell the Toastmakers classes. He teach them how to talk public in public forums. Right. So it's really dependent on what you want, which I guess starts, again, with communication. And so do we have established liaisons within each of our lacrosse clubs that can have a private conversation? Again, getting nuanced to this is if you sit with a team in their locker room and say, tell me what you want, it's likely that no one's going to raise their hand because of the peer pressure on their groups. Um, so having individual conversations might help you get there. And then you can think about the technology or the resources that are available to help yeah. someone get to what they want. I'll give you like a small example too of something unrelated, but the way I, th I think about really everything is if we want a good headshot of an athlete, really good one, because it's gonna live on ABC, ESPN, it'll live on the Jumbotron. Uh, I want them to look fucking great. I want them to look cool. So what that means is when we have a shoot, is to isolate them in a room without their teammates, so their teammates aren't mocking them. Because traditionally when you do headshots, you have a line of your team and everyone goes one at a time. So clear that. Set vibes, have good music, have a good photography, art direction, uh, director, good lighting, hair and makeup, boom. Like you have to be really thoughtful, you know? And I think a lot of executives in sports or under other industries just want the best thing, but they don't either invest or think critically about how to get the best thing. And sport, you just have to be meticulous. Yeah. And it's so bespoke, <laughs> you know? It's just so fucking bespoke. Yeah, but again, people are people yeah. are human. Someone wants to write a book, yeah. you know, and most people, most athletes say like, not for me. Yeah. But if I get that, I get a chance to ha have a conversation with that midfielder for Archers Lacrosse Club that wants to write a book, then I'm gonna say, cool. Let me introduce you to a couple of my publisher friends and see what see what you can do. The whole concept of this pod is this conversation that there there's something so special about 
the same values and themes and traits that it takes to be great on the field and how that applies to business. And it's clear as day that you're thinking through those things and that you are applying that. Closing question that we love to ask people are, are you doing business? Are you playing business? There's no question in mind that, that you are business. You've completely uh, uh, taken a lot of those themes that you had in, in, in sports and, and applied that. Um, I'm, I'm much more of a fan today than I ever was of, of you know, what you guys are building. I can't wait to, to go out and see a couple old buddies who are, who, are, who are playing in your leagues from Notre Dame and, and really excited to see what the future looks like. So I, I can completely trust with you and your brother at the helm of, of uh, you know, the, the POL that there's going to be you know, quite a bit of innovation and, and that you guys are going to be doing it the right way. So I really appreciate your time. I'm really appreciate excited that. to, to, to uh, I got become one a bigger question. Fan. When you were younger, you want to be Michael Jordan, obviously in, in lacrosse. Who do you want to be in business? Oh, that's a good question. So I think, um, so what, what I was going to say is that it's a good segue, so uh, off of each other. So first, thank you for having me, and, uh, and congrats on Notre Dame winning the lacrosse championship this year. It was really big for our sport. You know, Denver's the furthest team west of winning a national championship, now Notre Dame. Prior to that, over the last 10 years, was North Carolina. It's very much a, a mid-Atlantic northeast sport because, like I said, of the indigenous game, it was created by the Haudenosaunee that's northeast, right? So they, they border Canada and, and New York. And so you think about origins of anything, company, founders, leagues, sports, you, you sort of track where it was created and where the coaches go. Um, so congrats on that. I would say that uh, um, I, I am in the art form of business, but I would say one of the things that I'm reminding myself to do is break down the barriers of what it may feel like or look like or sound like to be in business. You know, I don't have my MBA. I didn't study business in college. Um, I think that there's so much creativity that can be unlocked in the art form of business is continuing to be unlocked through technology, uh, through spirit. Um, that looks differently than how business was, at least that I perceived when I grew up. Um, I think that the best CEOs, at least that I've had some exposure to, uh, Jeff Weiner at LinkedIn, uh, Reed Hastings at Netflix. Obviously, everyone can look at the way that Jeff Bezos sort of left his job in finance and started. I left my job in real estate and started. I am not Jeff Bezos. <laughs> but, uh, but I think the way that he talks about their core ingredient is something that Mike and I talk about. Their core ingredient is being customer obsessed. And we're fan obsessed. Fans and players are in our mission statement. Um, Sounds like I Jeff would say, Bezos is your Michael Jordan. <laughs> potentially. I would also say Ariana Huffington. She is a uh, she is as multi-dimensional, multi-faceted, multi-talented as anyone, uh, as entrepreneurial in her own right, as an author, as a speaker, as a mentor, um, and so I would I would leave her in there, and then even someone like Oprah Winfrey, who famously said in my birth year in 1985 that if uh, if it doesn't work out, she's going to be okay, to be just fine. Someone was someone was asking her a question and. Alluding to the criticism of, of running a major talk show, what if it's not successful? I'm gonna be okay. I'm gonna be just fine. And obviously, it was fucking massive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. awesome. Thank you. Appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah. that was Appreciate great. It. Thank you. This Thanks. is great, bro. Yeah. yeah. Thank cool. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Playing Business. 
As you know, Dan and I value good discourse and perspective. So let us know what you agree with, disagree with, or what you'd like to hear in a future episode. Always appreciate a good review or a rating, and be sure to subscribe. Thanks to the Owen Discourse and Audio Up team for the production of the podcast, and see you in the next episode.